actually capacity, just having some interest in chats with interesting people. Today I have River Page on, who is, uh, you can find him on Twitter at uh, Gay Liar Online, and writes for Twink Revolution, some really great articles we're going to discuss today. Uh, and yeah, I'm very hyped. How are you doing, River? Good. Uh, thanks for having me on. So you are kind of like a master at making people mad on Twitter, which is like <laughs> something it's, 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 it's quite incredible to behold because sometimes you'll tweet something that's kind of like trivially true and I'll be like, yeah, okay. And then the next thing I know, there's like a thousand quote tweets of people just melting down. So how do you do it? I, I don't really mean to most of the time. I think that like, it, I just started like, I still tweet like I have like 45 followers <laughs> and I don't anymore. And I think that might be the problem. I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't even use Twitter until like this year. So I had never really like been online. Like I had like Facebook or something, but it was just like, I don't know like looking at people's like pictures of their like kids from like high school or like whatever <laughs> or, like oh look who's in jail now from my hometown or like whatever like there's like nothing like this and so yeah I would just go online and and, and I just say things that people get angry at me but um I, I, I don't know <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. I, I've been thinking a lot about how, you know, Twitter is really impacting um, the way that people view politics, because everything's just in these little snippets. And uh, we have a, a little fallen soldier today, Donald Trump just got banned from Twitter, I think half an hour ago. I don't know if you you've heard about that. Yeah, I felt it was in the works. Um... I mean, a lot of people said that Kamala Harris wasn't going to be effective, but this is what she ran on and this is what she's she's gotten. So, I mean, I think it's quite a triumph for her. No, I mean, I think it's like kind of insane. Um, mm. The people who are like applauding this, <laughs> because on the one hand, like, I, I kind of understand it. I mean, he did incite a, a riot, but on the other hand, he's the fucking president of the United States and like a corporation is like banning him. Like mm -hmm. uh, it seems a little bit of an overreach. Um, and also, I mean, he is one of the best to ever do it. I mean, he's a good poster, so it's yeah, kinda... that's kind of a loss, I think. I think that's a loss to a lot of leftists that have a sense of humor, you know? Yeah. Like, there's the humorless leftists that are kind of like, we're happy that this is happening so like he's a fash that just incited a riot and again like I get that there's security concerns but at the same time like some some of the coca-cola tweets and stuff like they're kind of you know there's something that uh I don't know if we're gonna ever see again yeah all of the brands coming out <laughs> and <laughs> enforced just being like we condemn fascism we are here to protect our democracy and it's like very spooky to hear corporations talk about like our democracy <laughs> um, i mean it is theirs i mean they do own yeah. this country yeah. so i'm you know wendy's you know it's more of wendy's country than mine in many ways. <laughs> but yeah. um yeah and just I, I mean it has like sort of uh gotten into just this weird sort of performance. I mean, I saw where Olive Garden had revoked uh, Sean Hannity's like uh, lifetime pasta pass or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, what? what the fuck is going on? I'm like afraid that I'm gonna tweet something out one day and like, I, I don't know, my H&M rewards card is gonna get <laughs> like taken away from me. I, I don't know. It's um, it's just so silly. I think like I mean, what happened was serious, mm -hmm. but just people have made these demands. Like they've demanded that corporations step in and do this sort of like uh, quote unquote like do their part, which basically just means like censor or punish the people we don't like. And 
um, I mean, they're doing it like you got what you wanted, but I mean, is that really a good precedent to set? I, I don't know. Yeah, I find it really concerning because it seems like now they're the government and like people are making demands of them rather mm -hmm. than like the actual government and it just seems like you know they could easily take the government's place or the government will just stick around as like a symbolic fixture like the way that like Canada we have a monarch right but like we're not really mm -hmm. governed by the queen um so I don't know like I've been thinking about that a lot and I think also there's just this huge politics of condemnation where it's not just like the brands that have to condemn it's also individuals are like a personal brand on Twitter like I've had people search through hundreds of my tweets and be like why haven't you condemned this that means you're like a fascist and it's like some mm -hmm. obscure thing that happened like right you know what I mean like everyone's just supposed to comment on everything and it's just really oversaturating the, mm -hmm. the online sphere and so like I don't know I feel very anxious about it yeah I mean that's totally like the thing it's like people want you to uh quote unquote like speak out on every single issue but if they don't like what you have to say then they'll also yell at you um <laughs> or in my case I mean I was like literally doxxed last week <laughs> and so I mean yeah. like I mean there's uh like and it wasn't just like oh like they said my name like I, I mean like I use my real name for my writing which was a terrible mistake um but like no my, my home address phone number email like all of that uh because for nothing essentially mm -hmm. um and it's and it's really strange um because i think it's like a lot of people who have convinced themselves that like posting actually matters like that's a way that you can like affect change and in a way they're kind of right like you can affect uh you can you know make target release a statement on like black lives matter or whatever but you're not actually changing like the material powers that be in society yeah in yeah if anything it actually i feel like it blunts the power like i feel like um you know these corporations they almost like work to make the opposition more controlled and more watered down because now it's mm -hmm. like what is what are these movements anymore like what does it mean so the and, and you know it, it makes me think of occupy wall street as well and just all there's so many kind of movements that express popular discontent but then they have someone that latches on to it and makes it not what it was meant to be. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, that is concerning. And like, I kind of joked about this, but I felt like, like the, all the events that happened this last week just seems really convenient for me. Like, it seems like very convenient mm -hmm. to the tech platforms. Like, it's almost like they needed some sort of excuse to show that they're more powerful than the US government, <laughs> which is a sense, like this almost seems like flexing. Oh yeah. I mean, like, it's definitely like them like slapping their dick up on the table and being like, no, like, you know, we will control the discourse. <laughs> like, and like liberals have like, basically, I mean, I'm sure they already believed it at this point because it's kind of true, but like liberals have been like, you need to take responsibility because you need to like, make this platform safe because you control the discourse and it's like yeah they do control the discourse and now they're you know just showing it in a way that they weren't willing uh to be able to before and um it's concerning and all the people on the left who are cheering this you know do you really think that you know if if they actually felt threatened by some sort of like populist left movement that they wouldn't they wouldn't do the same to you because i can guarantee you mm. they would yeah I mean, these they are, have <laughs> like yeah. ask a palestinian <laughs> like exactly yeah um yeah and it I, and it goes even farther than this i mean i guess i can speak in kind of like vague terms because it's uh 
a story that I've kind of been working on that hasn't quite come out mm -hmm. uh, yet. There's still negotiations and stuff, but I have uh, someone who contacted me who was working on a um, on a documentary mm -hmm. about the um, 2000, I believe it was 2008 Armenian uprising. Uh, they call it the Velvet Revolution, which I knew nothing about. I haven't seen the film. I don't know what its content really is, but all I know is that uh, one of the uh, big uh, streaming platforms, I won't say which one, but you can use your imagination, mm -hmm. um, basically said that they were suspending, uh, you know, release of the film, which was already like contracted out for them to release it. They were gonna suspend uh, release of the film and uh, until further notice because the Turkish government was concerned. Um, and according to, you know, this guy, you know, the film had nothing to do with Turkey. It was just simply that the Turkish government uh, didn't want anything about Armenia out there because of the, you know, the recent, you know, sort of proxy war that's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it, it is like um, sort of dangerous, especially, you know, like in a more globalized sort of world um, that because, you know, if some government across the world, you may not be able to see a movie that you want to see because Rachel Erdogan doesn't like it. Yeah. you know it's insane and, and like that's the power that these you know corporations have because it's so centralized I mean you know 30 years ago this would have this is a movie that would have been out to you know festivals and uh maybe like some small indie theaters and you could buy a dvd or a vhs or whatever if you want to watch it but now that's not even an option anymore because the means to distribute that way just are completely gone especially after COVID yeah um, that's that's definitely true and I think it's the same yeah. with like social media as well and I've seen mm -hmm. people try to create alternative platforms but they never really stick like it really seems like there's a huge monopoly power that Twitter and Facebook I'm hesitant to even say Facebook when it comes to politics though because I feel like not a lot of people post about politics on Facebook anymore unless they're like over like 60 um but, but yeah well there is a lot of like politics that go on they're just like very normy politics it's people with like very sort of typical like kind of opinions or batshit crazy conspiracy theories like there's there seems to be nothing in between mm -hmm. um but because it's, I think there is like sort of a reigning in sort of force that Facebook kind of has because typically speaking, like, you know, the people on your Facebook, like in real life, mm -hmm. yeah. because that's how sort of how that platform was cultivated. It's like, oh, like reconnect with your like old friends from high school or whatever. Um, whereas Twitter, I mean, you can be completely anonymous if you want and still have like 10,000 followers. Um, so you, you know, you can just sort of say more like extreme things and there's nobody um, who can like sort of like comment and be like, you don't fucking believe that. Like, or like, <laughs> I know who you are. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I think that sort of like makes the discourse more extreme. But I mean, yeah, I mean, that's basically two dueling monopolies in that sphere. You have two dueling uh two or three dueling monopolies uh, in like the media sphere increasingly. You've got like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon. Um, and, you know, it, if all of these, you know, companies, you know, basically start working as a sort of uh, block, you know, then, then they can basically, uh, you know, control speech and it may they may come for the right first because that is the more destabilizing sort of uh or at least like the sort of trumpy like QAnon conspiracy right like that's the more destabilizing political force to capital right now but um if the left ever gets its shit together you know it could be us next <laughs> yeah i think so and i think i mean like i said i think it does happen to like select kinds of left activists. Uh, usually I've seen like anti-imperialist activists, mm -hmm. 
Um, there was, I know like Venezuela analysis, which just reports like factual or at least their interpretation of factual events, they keep getting taken off Twitter. I know like Wikipedia censored the gray zone uh, and they didn't even tell them what was factually wrong with their statements. It's just all association mm-hmm. with like the wrong things. Um, right. And I, I was thinking about this yesterday as, as I was, uh, I upset some people on, on Twitter and I was thinking like, okay, if I want to um, like have a peaceful Twitter account where it's just me tweeting about politics, but not having people get like rabid and ha- not being worried about like real life consequences, the opinions I share are actually going to be kind of boring. And mm-hmm. like, I have a lot of liberal and like left liberal or anarchist followers who agreed with like a lot of my stuff when I have been critical of like the right. Um, but I've just noticed that there are certain orthodoxies that like, if you challenge them, it's not even that like they say that you're wrong. It's that they say that like your moral character is tainted, which is like has a lasting effect because then it's not like, oh, this person is wrong about one thing. It's like, don't trust this person or don't listen to them, don't hire them because they're not like towing this line that we just established to be correct. And yeah. Or or it be that and then they essentialize um, anything that you say into like, for instance, like someone can take like one tweet out of context and then call you a white supremacist or like a transphobe or uh like whatever a xenophobe or whatever for like months on on end yeah um and there's really nothing you can do about it like you say like no i'm not like like, you know i've never expressed like anything that would you know that any normal person would interpret it as (laughs) you know me being a bigot but because people have um you know just so like There's just, I, I think that like there, people aren't even reading really. It's mm. like they see like a word pop out and like then they're yeah. like, oh no, 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 that's a no-go zone. Like yeah. whatever. You know? Yeah. Right. No, yeah. I, it, it's it's so ridiculous. And like I I mean, there are times like yesterday I just got really upset because like I asked for sources and that somehow is a, a huge offense um and like again it's like you know they'll compare it to something that's terrible and then say that your behavior is similar to something that's terrible even if you're engaging in good faith you know and Mm -hmm. it just I mean Mark Fisher's uh Vampire Castle is just always the thing I recommend to people but I I remember one of the funniest tweets that you had was when you said something like I wish that or I wonder if people will be able to insult me in a way that someone who doesn't spend six hours a day online would be able to understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It, it like, yeah, because people were calling me things that like I'm like I didn't know what this even meant until two months ago, and now like it's a reason for you to put like my home address on, like you know yeah. what I mean? I'm like, um, and, and in a way, it's almost kind of comforting because I have a very like normie menial wage like day job where I work outside and like whatever like not gonna dox myself but like it's not like even a job that like I had to have a degree for and it's like if like I would like laugh if like they tried to call my boss and be like you need to fire this class reductionist (laughs) you'd be like what is that (laughs) you know what I mean yeah like nobody's gonna fucking know but it does like kind of you know, worry me. I'm, I'm working on like a master's in history right now, uh, which was a mistake, but I like, <laughs> well, I might as well finish it. And then, you know, if I, um, you know, highest of hopes end up, you know, making 40 grand a year, like teaching at a community college somewhere. Um, but like there, like that type of shit, like out of context tweets all that like might actually like get me fired and so it is like very like stressful like I've you know um I've lost like sleep over 
you know, people getting angry at me online, which is like, you know, insane because I've, I've never actually like said anything that um, I think the average person would interpret as being, you know, bigoted in any kind of way. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is what worries me also is that I think it's genuinely going to make important career fields filled with the same kind of person. Like it's like a self-fulfilling mm -hmm. cycle because I mean, I too have definitely lost sleep over this and been like, oh my God, I, I, I'm in law school. Um, what if I'll never be able to like find work because like I have opinions that aren't part of the liberal, like the liberal line, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess um, what I realized is like, you know, same with academia, like you can't really say what you want until you're tenured, right? And like, I, I did the grad school thing too and thought about that. And my profs used to always tell me like, be careful what you say on Twitter until you're tenured. Uh, be careful about this, be careful about that. And I was thinking like, so by the time you get to that point where you can say whatever you want, like you've already towed the liberal line, you're probably either burnt out or you are part of that apparatus. And so you have no diversity of thought in these mm -hmm. like fields that need it, like teaching history, you need diversity of thought for history. This is like, this is like people's futures and, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a very important subject for people to understand. And in law, it's like similar, like you need diversity of opinion. And I think, you know, this is essentially stamping that out. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it, it's kind of um, plays into this idea that I've, you know, been formulating in, which is this idea of uh, like a sort of standpoint bureaucracy, because in the absence of any kind of class politics, which you know basically died out in the 1980s, at least in the United States, um, and you know in the UK as well. I don't really know much about Canadian politics, but it seems very uh, similar <laughs> to the situation we're in, as far as I can tell from here. Mm -hmm. um, you know what what is uh sort of replaced uh what might otherwise have been like a traditional marxist analysis has become a sort of standpoint theory which i think started out well intentioned yeah. and as a way to sort of like actually like gain like better knowledge of like what it's like for certain people although there are obvious pitfalls like one person cannot speak for an entire demographic of people mm -hmm. um you know even no matter how like thinly you slice it but um despite it's like sort of good intentions and like whatever might have been gained from it originally it's sort of just become this sort of bureaucracy that you know very well educated people can climb um and it's true on the left it's even true on a, the right to a certain extent mm -hmm. um you know you could be you know the black lady that hates affirmative action or whatever, you know, or, um, but, you know, in like sort of, you know, traditional academia, I mean, there's a reason that that culture produces someone like a uh, Jessica Krug, um, or there's, a, you know, a reason why the, the NGO sphere produces someone like a Rachel Dolezal. Um, it, it's because, you know, these people, um you know they're trying to scale this bureaucracy and like carve out a position for themselves to be able to speak um but it all has to be you know to personalize because you know that's the sort of fixture it's like you can't speak uh you know on a subject if you uh it's not even if you aren't directly involved but it's you know it's like you have to uh, you know, be the sort of face from central casting of someone who looks like they would know about this subject. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I don't know anything about like, uh, you know, sort of queer culture in the 1920s, but I would have a easier time writing a thesis about that than like some straight guy who knew everything yeah. about it <laughs> just because like you know people would kind of look a little bit sideways at um you know somebody 
who you know wasn't gay speaking about that subject even if they know plenty about it um so it you know i think it's um very limiting very crushing and it's like um just sort of like been disseminated throughout politics and throughout culture um in a way that only benefits the people who know how to scale that bureaucracy you know having a black president did it you know stop black wealth from decreasing during the financial crisis mm -hmm. you know kamala harris being attorney general did not stop a disproportionate amount of black men from being thrown into prison in california right um, yeah. so you know i think something needs to be done about that but it's it's very it's very difficult to confront because this has been you know sort of brewing for a long time you know uh it, it's not the main point of uh my article the particle sense of capital which is on twinkrow.com but a sort of undercurrent to you know that whole theme which i plan on exploring more later is that you know the new left in the 1960s and 70s essentially the people who were truly radical for the most part were killed right. <laughs> um you know the, the descendants of the new left are, are the people who were mostly affluent mostly white um and were just sort of like allowed to reintegrate back into polite bourgeois society and they went to corporate America, they went to the Democratic Party, they went to academia. And since they couldn't take the class analysis with them, which a lot of these people never really had a solid class analysis anyway, uh, you know, what they took was a form of culture war and identity politics on subjects that have mostly already been won by this point. And so now they're just spinning their wheels. You know, there's not really you know, anything that you can do about, you know, gay people, for instance, in this country, like there's nothing that gay people that like don't have that can't be fixed by a universal social program. Like right. gay people are, you know, gay people are more likely to be homeless, like especially like, you know, young people who maybe from conservative families get kicked out of their house, whatever. You can only solve that through like a universal housing program. Yeah. Um, you know, people who have AIDS and like can't access treatment, you can only really solve that through, you know, a universal healthcare problem or a, a universal healthcare system. Um, the same thing with like transgender rights, you know, I mean, I, I, you could still, I think they should pass, you know, anti-discrimination laws and so forth. But I mean, really, if, if you want to help these people, the best thing that you can do is through universal social programs and that's true for really all demographics because like the basic you know we aren't living in uh the 1950s anymore you know basic civil rights have been accomplished workplace discrimination whilst it still happens it's not as widespread as it used to be nowhere even close the problems are material more so than they've ever been they've always been material at the root but now even the sort of like uh sort of state uh you know racism or petty bigotry is like not as from that as it as the ones and like those type of things have to be solved through universal programs through unions uh ways rage <laughs> raising the wage uh minimal wage and, and so forth so i you know it's going to take people reorienting away from this sort of like standpoint bureaucracy and trying to like make money for themselves or secure themselves positions, which is basically what the left is for right now. Yeah, that's going to have to be. People are going to have to step away, or you know, the you know, good, well-meaning people 
of this country and you know at this point frankly every other like western country are going to have to like stand up and be like no this isn't about you anymore like we have to fight for all of us um because until that happens you know nothing's going to change because it's not for it's not in the interest of the people even within left institutions uh to do that sort of thing right now yeah what i wonder as well and I mean, I, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but it really feels like part of the problem is that, you know, each sort of group has their spokespeople and their spokespeople are not in touch with the majority of that group. So it's like, you know, sorry guys, I'm having connection problems. Um, but yeah, I, I think what one of the issues is when it comes to, um, like representational politics, when it doesn't have a class element to it, what happens is that you have people who have really nothing in common with the people they purport to represent being the face of these people. So for instance, like feminist movements here, um, not necessarily in like the third world, but in Canada or the US, these like the faces of it are usually like Hollywood celebrities, right? Like the Me Too, Time's Up stuff. Like, and so the problems that they have are not the problems that everyday women have. Like they don't live the same life, but then they right. represent feminism in that respect, right? There, they represent what women's rights look like. And it's like always about like the same kind of boutique issues. Like we want abortions, which yeah, like that is an important thing to have access to, but also like you have to consider why do people need them? And it's like, you know, women in poverty, like their connection to reproductive healthcare is completely different. It's a completely different experience than the connection that like a Hollywood celebrity doing like hashtag tweet your abortion has and so <laughs> it also feels right. like then they make other people like other people hate the movement right or they make them hate the left or what they purport is the left right because then it's like well this is an elite movement doesn't represent me why should i support it right and i mean this this goes back a long time i mean gloria stein um, uh <laughs> was literally like on the payroll of the CIA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she admitted to it. Um, and she, uh, what's the name of the organization? National Student Association. Um, yeah, she was working for the CIA. And she, she admitted so a couple of years ago. Um, and, and there were always like systematic sort of problems with feminism. Um, you know, I remember some interview where someone asked, you know, Betty Friedan, who wrote The Feminist Mystique, which is like the sort of handbook, like almost like the capital, if you will, of like uh, second wave feminism, like, okay, well, if all these women go to the workplace, who's going to take care of their children? And she said, oh, well, other women will do that. And then the oh, interviewer asked, like, oh, well, who's going to take care of their children? And, you know, you just sort of come to the conclusion that like, okay, well, either some children aren't going to be taken care of, going to be able to be taken care of, or like some women are going to have to choose between working to support themselves and having children. It's the same sort of debate with abortion, you know, and I understand, uh, you know, why people, I, I, I understand why people say, you know, low-income women need access to abortion because they can't afford children you know and like they deserve to be able to make that choice and I'm like but if you can't like if you have to have an abortion because you can't afford to raise a child is that really a choice yeah and also like you know isn't I mean? that's a glaring problem like I don't know how someone can say like like stop there by just saying someone can't afford a child because the immediate response should be why not like why can't people afford exactly. to have families anymore um mm -hmm. and and so I mean that in itself is, is a concern and so I mean I've advocated you know access to in Canada we are very blessed to have no issues in that department but for the most part um but I mean at the same time there's deeper problems and I've just noticed I mean this is just one example of a social movement that just is seems a little bit um oblivious to 
the actual struggles that people are having. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that you can really uh, fight for abortion access without fighting for universal childcare, uh, like child allowances, um, you know, universal healthcare, because like, if you really are pro-choice, you need to actually make sure that it's a choice because like, there's no like choice under coercion if people are, mm -hmm. you know, being coerced to terminate a pregnancy. You know, a lot of women, I mean, I, you know, I'm from the South and there are like, I know women who've had abortions that are like totally like, they're like, yeah, whatever. And, but I also know women who have had abortions because they didn't have any money and they were terrified that they were, they were like, I, I can't raise this child. I'm afraid like if I continue the pregnancy, I you know won't be able to get it for uh, adoption because I'm too attached and like whatever. And like, then they wind up like actually beating themselves up for it. And, you know, part of that is cultural and religious, you know, reasons. A lot of it's not. Um, and, you know, I feel for those people too, because I, I, I do think that like, you know, we should have a society where people can raise children. It's one of the most, you know, basic sort of things that a society should provide. Um, and it's insane that like feminism has, you know, gotten to a point where they're like, no, like it's very bootstrappy in a way. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, they're like, if you can't afford to raise a child, you shouldn't have a child. You should be responsible <laughs> almost, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, and the state shouldn't be able to get in the way of, you know, you exercising that responsibility is like how it comes off. Um, and, you know, I think that a, a lot of people, you know, perhaps thought that, you know, especially when, you know, bell hooks and people like that came on the scene that, okay, maybe now we can get, um, you know, some, you know, voices of people who were not like, you know, white middle-class women. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, um, at least in the mainstream sort of discourse, that hasn't really happened. Um, yeah, particularly and, not here. Like, I think it, it exists. I, I, when I had Esperanza on, for instance, she mm -hmm. like talked about proletarian feminism, which is, you know, had a lot of um, development in places like India. But mm -hmm. here, it, it doesn't seem to be the case. And I think also because we're very impacted by capitalist ideology and capitalist notions of, of freedom. And I mean, one of the biggest, this is one of the biggest things I've learned in law school and in contract law in particular is like everything we assume about freedom and choice is extremely capitalistic here and more so uh, like in the US than in Canada but mm -hmm. still very much so here in the sense that like, you know, so many things that are considered a free choice when they're not really. Um, and so it, it, it always kind of privileges a sort of capitalist ordering of things that I like, even progressive movements are not immune from that. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely not. Um, yeah, and, and I think that what you were saying, I, I listened to that episode, it was very good. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that, you know, I, I really respect like Esperanza and, you know, people like you who are trying to sort of like bring that sort of voice of reason in because the sort of like uh, version of that that exists, it seems most commonly in the United States is somebody that, you know, maybe comes from a disadvantaged background, um, but then just says like basically anything that somebody like Gloria Steinem would say, but then yeah. also say like, oh, well, you know, black women are more likely to die during, you know, childbirth or like whatever, um, but then propose, you know, the same sort of policies that, yeah. you know, any just you know, standard liberal would do instead of like going, you know, to a more class-based analysis or a more universalist, you know, sort of like, you know, we need universal healthcare because of this and this will solve the problem yeah. um yeah yeah no we literally are eating from the trash can of ideology like it, oh, yeah. <laughs> it really feels like that and it's like you know it just goes all the way to the top like and so like that's something i've learned and 
just the way that we order ourselves, there's just so many assumptions about, you know, freedom of choice. And I mean, I mean, part of it as well, I think is very, um, like you've written about the new left and, and Caleb has also uh, spoken about it as well, but there's like a huge sort of uh, anarchistic or libertarian influence in, in leftist political thought um that seems to have kind of taken over um mm -hmm. since the end of the cold war right um and it's not just like anarchism uh i think that the roots um kind of i mean they, they lie in a lot of different things they try they lie in you know uh liberalism they lie mm -hmm. in trotskyism anarchism um I'll, but a lot of it is just, um, you know, people, the, the class orientation of, you know, the people who were running all these organizations in the new left, which really did begin on college campuses, was completely different from that of, uh, mainstream American culture at the time. They really put all of these cultural ideas front and center um, and alienated a, a lot of people very, very quickly who you know would have otherwise been on their side. And there was a lot of sort of self-centeredness. You know, I talked about how you know the Vietnam War had been going on for years um it was escalated and um that's when you know the sort of like campus you know activism kind of started and then when but like all hell didn't break loose mm -hmm. until nick uh sorry johnson got rid of draft deferments for college students or, or he didn't get rid of them he uh, you basically had to like take a test and like if you scored well enough you could get a deferment if you didn't then you <laughs> couldn't um, and it wasn't until that happened that you know the the chaos really started and there was you know a sort of feeling in the United States I mean I've even heard you know, my grandparents talk about it and they're like all, all those fucking hippies didn't care until they had to go you know what I mean because people were getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people drafted before, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, now that the possibility is a prison that you might have to go, now you're like burning your draft card. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, like people saw right through that. And um, I mean, I, I just, uh, the, the, the institutions of like, you know, labor, in the industries where it matters the most, where it would be the most advantageous, like the energy sector, you know, sort of like uh, blue collar professions, trades um, are just so completely dissociated from the left and even at this point the democratic party that yeah you know it's like nothing we've ever seen before and that all you know started in the in the 70s i mean my brother is an electrician he's in a union my uncle works construction he's in a union both of them voted for donald trump mm -hmm. and like never even consider it and, and it's not like a bullshit union like they can tell you more about the history of the labor movement than most of um, the people that I go to grad school with because they have to take these like little like classes and stuff where they teach them about like, you know, okay, well, you know, uh, there was this fire in New York and all these women died. And like, that's really when the labor movement started off and like all this. And, uh, you know, I had like a 30 minute conversation with my uncle over Christmas about the coal wars. Um, and he was like wearing like a make America great again hat, you know, like the, the and that is a, uh, 
product of, you know, the left, you know, giving up on labor and attaching themselves to cultural issues in a way that was almost maximalized to be transgressive and to like offend people. Um, and they won. So it would be nice if they could kind of just like scale all of that back. <laughs> you know, it's like, you you know, you, you got the things that you set out to do. Yeah. But it's like, no, like now it never stops. Now we have to, you know, understand like what star gender means or, you know, like uh, we have to, you know, at, you know, we have to sit around in like a DSA meeting and like ask people what their pronouns are, even if it's obvious, um, right. you know, anyone and everyone has like some sort of like disability that can be like, you know, uh, basically utilized as like a, a, a cudgel like, you know, I remember like the DSA uh, meeting where they were like, you know, no clapping because it might like trigger people's anxiety or something. It's just like very, um, you, you know, when Angela Nagel talked about that, she said, you know, I can't see any working class person sitting in that room. And that was like the final straw for her, right? Like that's when like people really came after her. I think that's when she deleted her Twitter account. Like you know, people went insane after that. I found and cited for an upcoming article that I'm writing, like four different articles that were written in response to that one television appearance where she said, I don't think any normal person could sit in that room. <laughs> and she's fucking right. No normal person could sit in that room. My uncle and my brother, both like trade unionists, dues paying trade unionists who would never fucking scab would not sit in that fucking room yeah no it's um ever it, it's alienating i think and it's very individualized like i feel like the left has kind of lost its universalist um like like you were talking about before like universal programs like just being like we want everyone to be free and now it's just being becoming very particularized to you know this is my personal preference my personal identity um, and I think, you know, we need to have a program of respect for, you know, everybody, like I've considered myself a progressive person and in, in that, mm -hmm. like, I think bigotry is bad. Like, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I support trans rights. Um, but yeah, like, I think that there's a difference also between like affirming people's dignity and affirming that we all need to mutually respect each other and not hate someone based on who they are and then demanding that everybody understand the nuances and the particulars of who you see yourself as because mm -hmm. like frankly like most people don't spend their time reading about this kind of thing like i you know you can say like you need to respect this person uh who is trans like that i like 100 percent but like at the same time, I'm like, you don't need, you can't demand that people read like the metaphysics of gender and like understand like whatever, or like ontology or something like that. Like you can't demand the average person knows about that, but like, yeah. Yeah, and, and like you can't demand that, you know, like you can demand that people be respectful. You can demand that people, uh, you know, treat people the way they want to be treated. But you, you like, I, this whole um, sort of movement on the left of, you know, if you're like a straight white man or whatever, that you should like just eternally feel like bad about yourself or like guilty. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that shit is not going to work in the real world. Yeah. Like, it doesn't. Like, and people like shouldn't be bad like feel bad for like being who they are or like I mean someone called me a racist one time because I like someone said well don't you think that all white people can contribute to the system of white supremacy just by existing and I said no that is not no like I don't I don't know what kind of turns you have to make to to make that exist like 
you can like be a white person, not be a racist and like, you know, do everything that you can to help black people and you're still contributing to white supremacy. I mean, like, what does that leave you with? Like, what is your solution if this is the problem? If the, if the problem is white people existing, like what does that lead you to? I mean, it's insane. Yeah. And, and of course, this is white people telling me this. It's not fucking black people, <laughs> yeah. like, well, which is the funniest yeah. part. Um, and and um, that's just not how, that's just not how people think. That's mm-hmm. not how people live. Like Southern conservative family, you know, you know my first cousin is married to a black guy my uncle is married to a mexican woman my other uncle is married to a uh, colombian woman it's like people tend to sort of get along and like be respectful and like have families and like it tends to be you know you know you could take any of those people and like if you know some Twitter like woke lord or whatever like had a conversation with them I'm sure they like find something that they said was like problematic mm-hmm. but it's like no like they have more you know people of color and like their family like their children are like not white like they actually love and like have deep connections with you know all of you know I mean, a more diverse group of people than you probably do you know, sitting in, you know, DC in a, in a white shoe law firm or whatever, because they're working class. Most people of color in this country are working class. And uh, like, that's like, it, it really is um, very dangerous when you almost seem to have like, you know, anybody who doesn't talk about race or gender or sexuality or whatever in a way that, you know, you would have to essentially have a degree in the subject to understand or relate to is like extremely dangerous for the working class because like, you know, the, these concepts are very theoretical. They're very like in some ways very abstract and like. They're difficult. The average person doesn't, yeah, it isn't engaging with that. And it doesn't mean that they're like hateful or that they don't care about the, you know, the people in their lives who they're oftentimes more deeply connected to than, you know, some of these people would be again. Uh, and I, I think that it is intentionally or not um, becoming a way of essentially resegregating people based on identity from above. Mm-hmm. It is like pitting working class people against each other. Um, you know, all orchestrated through academia, through uh, human resources departments and like all these other things. Um, and, and that's that's not something that we should, you know, be engaging with. It's... Um, it's very dangerous for the left, in my opinion. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, that the way that the academic role, like, this is something I have thought about, um, because I, I took a year off from school, and, you know, spent time mostly, like, with family who are conservative, um, all mm-hmm. great people, like, <laughs> that's just how they interpret the world, whatever, um, and again, like, they're just normal people, I'm searching for like a normal left, I can't find it. And I think that, you know, when you're in university and you take these classes, like you take feminist theory or you take philosophy of race or something like that, the way that you understand something like, you know, all white people are racist is like, you rationalize it through saying something like, um, oh, well, we don't mean like it's a bad thing. We mean like we mean it's bad, but like we, we just mean that's how you're socialized or you're socialized in a racist world. And that means that like, you know, you're you're just always going to be racist. That's like the D'Angelo kind of take. Mm-hmm. Right? And I mean, I always just think like something I learned with just being around conservatives is I'm like, you know, there are better ways to say these things. Like, <laughs> 
you can you can still acknowledge that there's a history of racism that you can acknowledge that like I have like lighter skin than most of the people in my racial group and so like I can be like yeah like that might give me some advantages um but like that's very different than just being like like I feel like they people want to put them into snippets and just be Mm -hmm. like you know if you are white you are racist or like if you are this like if you are man you are sexist and whatever and it's just kind of like the average person is not going to interpret it in the way that it maybe academia might intend you to interpret it like academia might intend you to interpret it as like oh they mean that like this is a systemic issue that like impacts the way that people think or impacts the way that people or whatever and I think Mm -hmm. like that there's that disconnect and then I also like like it's not an op but could be an op I don't know awfully convenient again it's awfully convenient for like corporate elites um people who actually perpetuate um material things that do harm marginalized people marginalized identities so like imperialism um financial crises stuff like that um they like it's just awfully convenient that now like they have a movement or they have like ideals where they can say oh like the problem isn't us it's all of you like you're all oppressing each other that's who's Mm -hmm. the one doing it like it's not us like you know (laughs) Obama like could be like you know he's he basically helped revitalize the slave African slave trade Mm -hmm. but again like it's like oh well it's not me (laughs) that's contributing to it it's like you know it's all of you individuals who are like your beliefs are somehow like having this big impact on the system and it's like yeah yeah i i remember um that i forget which auto plant it was i think it was toyota in alabama um the u uh uaw was trying to unionize this auto plant this was a couple years ago and union busters um, we're basically going around telling all the black people that all their white coworkers were like racist because like, oh, we saw them with like, you know, uh, a Confederate flag decal or like whatever, which like is like something that people should not do. But as somebody's lived in the South for their whole life, I do know people who like will have like a Confederate flag decal on the back of their truck and like absolutely not have a problem with black people. It's just like a cultural thing, which like, I'm not defending it, but like, that's just mm-hmm. the way it is. And then they would tell like the white people like, oh, well, you know, they, uh, when this contract gets signed, it's gonna pay uh, the black people more because the black people think they should get more because they used to be slaves. Um, yeah. Which wasn't true. That wasn't, and they, they hadn't even started negotiating the contract. I'm almost certain that they wouldn't be in it because I think that would probably be illegal under like current U.S. law. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they effectively, they the union uh, lost the election and they didn't unionize. And it was like they used like both wokeness and racism yeah. to, you know, crush a unionization effort that would have helped um, you know, get these people better wages, better time off in a state where, um, you know, the only reason that auto companies are producing cars down here in the South now is because there's not a long, uh, you know, history of trade unions, except in like certain areas and certain industries, certainly not in that industry in in manufacturing. because they've always been able to use racism uh, to stop the unionization efforts. And now they're using both racism and wokeness. So it's like, you know, it kind of goes both ways now. I mean, the corporations will use, uh, you know, whatever it takes to keep working people divided against each other. It used to be, uh, you know, Jim Crow and now it's Robin D'Angelo and I'm not saying like those things are like the same okay yeah. <laughs> but I but I am saying that yeah. like 
you know, to an audience of working class people, those serve the same purpose because people know that like, if, you know, you come into a bunch of people who like, didn't fucking go to college and you tell them, you know, you are racist to your black coworkers, like simply by existing essentially, they're gonna get offended by that and rightfully so. Um, and then that's gonna, you know, sort of make them distrustful and uncomfortable around the people that they work with every day. You know, they might not go to a union meeting because they're or, or, like speak up or like say whatever because they're afraid that like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get in trouble for for saying something insensitive and I'm gonna get HR card on me, whatever. Like, it it shuts down communication and so it's like discord. And um, as as the country gets sort of like more diverse, it's only going to become a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think also like it is degrading, like I say this all the time, but I'm like, this is literally like, it debases us all, you know, like it's yeah. not, it's not even just that it's like, you know, insulting to, to one group or another. It's just like an activity that we all know is not really genuine. Like we all know that like Ben and Jerry's is not like, you know, doing what they do from the goodness of their heart. We all know that like these companies are using these movements as cynical, cynical tactics, right? And like, I don't know, it, it's, it just feels like part of it is just being like, well, we know that we can do this. And I think part of it's also, you know, trying to, like you said, break unionization, avoid corporate liability as well. If you give a Robin D'Angelo workshop and then some one of your workers goes and says something bad on Twitter, you can say, well, we can't be liable because we train them with this mm -hmm. program. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, it's just, it doesn't achieve any of the goals that it says it wants to achieve. And I think everybody knows, and I, including the people who are putting it out there. And it's like, you know, we incentivize these kinds of performances as well. Like not to say that like, you know, the average person can't be complicit, like with this whole condemnation culture, we incentivize Coca-Cola or whatever to put out a statement and, and say the right thing. But at the yeah. same time, it's just, it's very cynical to me. Yeah, yeah. Coca-Cola can, you know, stand with black and indigenous people unless those black and indigenous people are the ones that they're like murdering for trying yeah. to like unionize a coca farm or whatever in Colombia. Yeah. yeah exactly um, and like yeah. all so many of these companies they're like involved in imperial projects like it was just so laughable to see shell sponsor a talk by the person from the 1619 project and stuff like that oh, like God. it's it's just very i don't know it <laughs> it's bleak to me and I mean I think I got very I got interested in, in politics through the anti-war movement and so it's just been incredibly you know disheartening to see that movement it's it's essentially like an endangered species of a movement and part of it is because we're able to get the companies who profit from imperialism to manufacture consent or at least just you know say the right things and uh make things look like you know human rights issues and yeah it's yeah um, and, and i mean there's even you know there's woke war now yeah. i mean like like people were uh you know i'll never forget in 2016 all the people who were sort of bemoaning uh, which, I mean, turned out to be exaggerated, I think. Um, you know, the, the extent of Trump's isolationism, but mm -hmm. bemoaning Trump's isolationism and saying like, you know, this is a sign of xenophobia and Trump was xenophobic, but for completely different yeah. reasons that <laughs> had nothing to do with like, you know, Syria. And, and like Trump was right, we shouldn't be involved in Syria. Shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, we've done enough damage to the Middle East that we shouldn't be there. Um, I do think we should have, you know, taken the refugees. I 
you know, completely disagree with that. But the whole, I mean, make no mistake about it, like the whole outcry from the liberal establishment, establishment on like, you know, Trump's retreat from the world and, you <laughs> yeah. know, Angela Merkel is the head of the free world now, I think, is what the economist said. Um, you know, all of that was just like a sort of, you know, cover for saying, you know, American imperialism equals freedom because it's not imperialism. We are, you know, liberating the masses. It's the same old like neocon lie that we that was used in Iraq. It's just now being used by a uh, more telegenic and diverse group of people who call themselves Democrats. Yeah. Many times. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I know it's very. I don't know. I hope that like we'll find a way to challenge the system in a, in a better way. Um, for now, we have come up on time, but this was a very good chat. I think much needed. Very cathartic for me after my last few days on Twitter. So <laughs> I know. thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. us.